0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG Live event.
1: Hello and welcome everybody to this IFG Live event brought to you in partnership with the international law firm Gowling WLG. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, one of the co-authors of the Institute's recently published report, taking back control of regulation. And that's the question we're going to be asking today. The government's taken back control. That was obviously the most memorable phrase from the referendum campaign five years ago. Um, But how does the government now actually make the most of the freedoms that it's fought so hard to gain? Because after all, one of the things we noticed as they they negotiated the trade and cooperation agreement that the David Frost, uh, Boris Johnson negotiating team Absolutely prioritised over everything else that regaining regulatory autonomy, even at the cost of the Northern Ireland Protocol, even at the cost of introducing trade frictions that might otherwise have been avoided. That indeed, the Theresa government, May government didn't think necessarily was a price worth paying for uh, Brexit. So that's the question we're going to do see if the government has now started to develop that forward agenda uh, and The government is actually seeking more assistance in that area. They've just put up an advertisement for a director of the Brexit Opportunities Unit. So if you're thinking of applying, this is the event you need to be at because this will help you with that job interview. And to give you that personal assistance or indeed just to map out the territory ahead, I'm joined by an absolutely top panel. So I'm delighted to welcome Bernadine Adkins, partner and head of EU trade and competition at Gowling. John Foster. Interim Director of Policy and Communications at the Confederation of British Industry. Ian Martin, columnist at the Times, editor of Reaction, and a Brexit supporter uh, who is willing to engage on these topics, which is always incredibly good to see. And last, but by no means least, my excellent colleague, Joe Marshall, Senior Researcher at the Institute. And I think he won't mind me saying... Because taking back control does, after all, mean taking responsibility. Lead author of our recent report on regulation. So we're going to get going. But before we get going, just a bit of housekeeping. This event is on the record. If you want to ask questions and you're a civil servant, you can ask them anonymously. um, So do take care. We are going to make a recording available afterwards. So tell all your friends who missed the event and we will be tweeting it out but meanwhile we will be live tweeting from the ifg events account but please do tweet along and that's our usual hashtag hashtag ifg brexit so join in and we're going to rattle through as much as we can but do post your questions as well and if you see someone who's asked the question perhaps not quite as brilliantly as you would have put it It would help me enormously if you upvoted that slightly inadequate question rather than insist on doing your own. And please, I know it's tempting, but don't write essays because it's quite difficult to read and look at the panellists on time. So short, snappy and upvoted, all very good. And then we'll try and take as many as we can. But to get us going, let us start with, you know, the agenda set out in that TIGA report that was finally unveiled. It was due at the end of April. Didn't quite bounce into action on time, but was finally unveiled a couple of weeks ago, and see whether that actually charts the way ahead. John, the CBI fed into the Tigger report. Did it uh, set out the agenda you wanted to see? Basically, did you dictate it?
2: Did we? Did we dictate the report? Well, morning, Jill. Morning, colleagues. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for the invite. Um, so, look on the Tigger report, Jill. I think our take is. As you said, we fed into it. I think the objectives and the ambitions of the report are actually spot on. So if you look at some of the objectives, how do we use regulation to boost productivity? How do we use it to promote competition, stimulate innovation? All of those things are exactly what our members are talking to us about on a daily basis. And then if you think about the ambitions that the report has. So how do we ensure the UK is a genuine leader? on the global stage of regulation? How can it improve our international competitiveness? All that sort of piece. How can it drive the levelling up agenda? There's no qualms whatsoever with both the objectives and the ambitions. And indeed, we sent in a list of 10 recommendations, I think, our sort of rag rating, the Tigger report did about eight, eight and a half of those. So listen, we're pretty pleased. We think there's some good stuff in there. What I would say though, Jill, is the Tigger report probably misses the kind of bigger prize at play. So what it does is provide a series of quite specific, focused recommendations. I think for the CBI, where our members are at, we're thinking probably slightly longer term, slightly bigger picture. And I think there are two things that we've got our eye on. So one is how do you align regulation to a genuine long term national economic strategy, a 10 year vision? where the economy wants to go. So how do you use regulation to really promote some of the big opportunities that are at play? So things like uh, decarbonisation, the race to net zero, the innovation piece, tech diffusion, R&D development, that kind of piece. And then secondly, alongside that with the 10-year vision, how do you align it to where actually there are some really big sector plays that the UK can make? And we've done some analysis as part of our, our seize the moment work around actually where the UK can be genuinely world-leading on the sector piece. It's things like genomics, life sciences, uh, advanced engineering, fintech, all that kind of piece. So the Tigger report probably misses a bit of a trick in terms of where regulation can drive a 10-year strategy. And then I think the second point I'd make before we're interested in the views of colleagues It doesn't necessarily feel like the report channels where the UK can have a genuinely competitive advantage. So I think all of us in one way or another have spoken to our European counterparts about regulation for well a good few years now. And I think there's a bit of a missed trick here. So people talk about the Europeans fearing the UK in a race to the bottom, the kind of Singapore on Thames. I don't believe that. I don't believe they think we're going to do that. I don't think the UK is going to do that. I think where they fear the UK, is where we can get a competitive advantage by being dynamic and agile. One country moving quickly versus 27 moving slowly. Where can we be innovative and proportionate? So where can we strike the right balance between consumer protection and investment? And then where can we we be future focused? So where can we look at emerging consumer priorities, technological developments, all that kind of piece? That's where the UK can have a genuine competitive advantage. And it feels like the report probably misses a bit of a trick on that part as well. So, those two areas how do you align it with a broader 10 year strategy? And how do you use regulation to really turbocharge that competitive advantage that the UK can have?
1: So, John, just to pick you up on the sort of strategy point, one mm. of the other acts of the government, obviously at the budget, it published its plan for growth and referred to regulatory reform as one of the levers in the plan for growth, but simultaneously it disbanded. The industrial strategy council mm. and said it wasn't going to have an industrial strategy anymore because the plan for growth was the industrial strategy so isn't that giving you the big picture it doesn't plan for growth give you that big picture framing you're looking for what's what's sort of missing or should they have retained the industrial strategy council and actually if you like given tigger as an input into that industrial strategy council is that more what you're looking for
2: good it's a really good question jill so I think plan for growth is great. It sets exactly the right ambitions. And if you look at the CBI sees the Moment report, there's a lot of alignment between our themes, the big opportunities and what the government has outlined. That's fantastic. What the plan for growth doesn't do is provide almost the micro detail. It is a collection of promised white papers, funding streams, consultations it doesn't have that business-led action for the how are you actually go into deliver it. So we think plan for growth sets the right objectives, the right ambitions. Actually, there's a little part on business, the CBI, others, the IFG, et cetera. How do we fill in some of the gaps? The industrial strategy was incredibly detailed, arguably in some areas too detailed, but actually there's a balance to be struck between government setting the ambition and actually business-led action filling in some of the gaps. I mean the question on the council, it's something that comes up from our members. It's a bit of a missed opportunity, that whole idea of independence metrics holding to account, broadly thinking, broadly speaking, sorry, that's a that's a good idea. If the government's not going to bring that back, which doesn't look likely, we think there's a real need for how do you build in that business input so that they can develop the plan for growth. So it's a great starting point, but let's see if we can build it out with a bit more of that micro detail using the kind of business input.
1: So, Ian, uh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. We'll come back to some of these uh, some of these issues about where business is on this agenda. But I want to come to the sort of politics of this a bit more. Ian, uh, hmm. you, you know, supported Brexit, um, and one of the big gains from Brexit is this right to make regulation ourselves. Do you think that this is actually, you know, we now have a bit more of a blueprint of what that can look like? And is this actually going to sort of deliver the political dividends that Brexit supporters? I know that's quite a quite a heterogeneous group group Brexit supporters were looking at. Is this the beginning of the government's big political project to show that Brexit was worth it?
3: Well, morning, Jill and, and morning, everyone. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. You know, as a Brexiteer, the question that all Brexiteers feared during the referendum was can you point to a single specific eu regulation that you really hate that will go after to after brexit you know i'm being really honest here as a brexiteer is that what brexiteers generally wanted to do was to move on to the the general rather than the specific and that was because it was seen as a, it was seen in big ideological terms as about notions of self government and that questions like this could be pushed into the medium term, five or 10 years down the line. Well, what do you know? Here we are in the medium term and things have to start getting really specific. And I mean, I've been encouraged by the Tigger uh, report, but that was, the, I mean, the politics of that really are uh, all about the government and having a prime minister who thinks in very broad general terms, realizing mm-hmm. about now or just before Christmas, that he actually needed the specifics and that someone needed to go and do the hard thinking on this and come up with some some recommend recommendations because the government didn't really have very much so i think it's a really good start i quite like the big picture elements of, of it actually I, I i do think it's rooted in in, an, in a in a vision of the british economy which is which is really forward-looking i think that the industries that they identified as potentially being you know, big growth industries i think they're looking in the right place i think they're right on financial services i think the uh, you know the the genome side of things digital health all of that uh, so but this is this was a government blindsided by the pandemic that just recently emerged from the whole sort of brexit trauma needing to have something uh solid and, and, and a plan and then cast around for a for a, a couple of people george freeman particularly in, uh, in a bit of a hurry and said, look, try and put something together. So it, it is in that sense, it's uh, it's the beginning beginning of a process. What I liked about the recent, one of the many things I liked about the recent um, uh, IFG report was that it explained that this is a complex business, that it, you've got to get beyond the binary sloganeering of the Brexit referendum and the Brexit uh, trauma and actually accept that there are, there are there are trade-offs and it's not just purely about sovereignty if you're going to diverge in one area you need to have the institutional capability and whitehall capability to try and intelligently analyze how rivals uh, competitors and partners will view that and how they will respond that we're not operating in a vacuum so I think actually, all, all in all, over the course of the last three three months and three months or so, I'm sure people will have criticisms. Things are starting to things are starting to to, to move on to the real agenda of um, you know more specific um, proposals. But so I, I think it's quite an exciting period.
1: Good, that's very excellent, chair. Uh, I'm going to go maybe to yeah, perhaps uh, people might be casting a slightly more sceptical eye on this. Bernard Um the. Tigger report made quite a lot. John was talking about big picture. One of the things that it sort of seemed to major on was this um, slightly sort of obscure for some of us um, uh, assertion that actually there was a lot of benefit in adopting a sort of more common law approach to regulation. Indeed, you know, there's generally been criticism over the years that the EU, very legalistic, having to legislate for 28, now 27 member states rather than just for one, quite a sort of heavy handed regulator. Um, Does that suggest a big change in regulatory philosophy? Are there big advantages to to that? Or do you think that's based on a bit of a misunderstanding? I'm really intrigued as well by whether your clients are seeing this as opportunities or whether lots of them are actually saying, well, all this means is I'm going to have to pay you our legal advisers to understand two regulatory regimes. And that might be great news for lawyers. But not necessarily great news for a dynamic economy
0: okay thanks jill and good morning everybody yes i think as any lawyer would say first define your terms so what do we mean by the common law and i'll never forget one of the first lectures at university was being told the common law is harbored in the breasts of the judges i remember thinking what on earth is it doing there in the white male middle class public school educated you know in very very narrow cohort but common law is judge made law. So you know, does, does the government realize what they're doing? They're putting this level of power in the hands of judges. And I didn't think judges were the most popular people. Um, and and also at the moment the the government is espousing, let's actually narrow down the the ambit of judicial review. So people need to understand what we mean by common law, because we also have statute law, and that's Parliament, and Parliament is supreme. So I think these people are not understanding what they mean by common law. And if they mean that common law is another name for a misnomer for fluid and, and just generally let's make it up as we go along, business does not welcome that approach. Business wants certainty, business wants predictability, business wants cohesion, cohesion. And it is in that regulatory context that we will encourage foreign direct investment, which is very much what, what we actually need. Um, so that, 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 that in short is what I would, would say about that common law approach. I think, don't think people realize what exactly they mean, They mean, and, and it doesn't mean what they, they think it does.
1: And Bernadine, how constrained are we by what we signed up to in the trade and cooperation agreement. I mean, and no Northern Ireland is separate. Let's leave Northern Ireland to the side. We signed up to various commitments, the famous battle over level playing field, potential rebalancing mechanism. We also slightly intriguingly, I thought, signed up to the precautionary principle, which I thought we were quite sceptical about. Um, philosophically and thought that was actually as interpreted by the EU tends to be rather anti-innovation we've heard that a lot of the possibilities are on the more innovative side how constrained will we find ourselves or is that still to be tested by what we signed up to in the TCA?
0: This is a puzzle to me because it's very clear in the TCA, we, we, you know, generally speaking, we are signed up to the precautionary principle. Yet the Tigger report is talking about proportionality and proportionality. You can search as hard as you want. You will not find the word proportionality in any, any of the medieval texts of common law, which we are supposed to be returning. Proportionality, ironically, is a concept of EU law. Uh, And also proportionality flows through like a stick of rock, you know, like, like, you know, Margate on sea through a stick of rock through 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 the concept of of this uh, of of EU law. So, you know, we're absolutely signed up to it. So this uh, this notion that we can revert back to the more the US thinking, the risk based approach simply doesn't stack up in terms of this TCA. And also we are. Also opening ourselves up to problems, I think, with the with us, you know, jumping onto the platform trade agreement of the CPTPP, because, as you know, that was very much as very much was originally an American construct. It's adopting that, that risk based approach of the US. So we're moving ourselves down that road, but actually we're going to be pulled back, tugged back by what we have signed up onto under the TCA. And business, again, are going to be asking for that level of predictability and for a continuum with the EU rules. So do you think there's a real risk um, if you
1: look down the line that if we adopt I don't know whether you've sort of got any flashing red light on any recommendation in the Tigger report or anything else you see in the government thinking about in part of its sort of forward looking agenda. Is there anything where you think, well, if they did that, then I think we would face quite a rapid, um, rapid challenge from the EU and that potentially could end up with, you know, retaliatory tariffs or in the dispute resolution mechanism is there anything you think where we might be being lured into territory that could actually end up in a dispute we know relations that appear to be a bit better than they were with the eu but they're not uh, not stunningly brilliant at the moment well it's interesting what i'm
0: seeing because i flip half my time uk uk brussels contrary to what what john expressed i think absolutely initially there was fear you know, we, we will be some, you know, this Singapore on Thames, and there was a lot of discussion and thinking, certainly from France in, in explaining that, you know, Brexit will succeed and the UK will tank its regulatory schemes. But actually, my view is what is happening on the ground, there is real interest and intrigue and curiosity on the ground in terms of, well, what is Britain going to do? Because we are, you know, the UK is respected as, you know, as a regulator. It, its thinking is respected. Uh, and there's very much, you know, we're doing this, for example, the Digital and Markets Act. There's very much, well, how is Britain going to do that? And I think the UK is doing, for example, uh, Mike Walker, the chief economist for the CMA recently, you know, I witnessed him, you know, discuss, describing this to the American Chamber of Commerce, saying this is what Britain is proposing to do. It's slightly nuanced, it's slightly different. So what I want really to instead of fear and opposition, if we all, you know, talk nicely to one another, we can see actually perhaps regulatory arbitrage emerging clearly whether we could be a natural experiment or vice versa let's see how the eu gets on with it and then we'll have a go or we could be the natural experiment and the eu copy so i think there could be some very very positive cross fertilization rather than everybody being at loggerheads with one another why can't we actually use this as an opportunity for to borrow from the you know the law cofield concept some regulatory arbitrage and to have a, a more of a positive result than this opposite opposition, opposition approach because there's an awful lot out there geopolitically to worry us um, beyond just, you know, having spats with the EU.
1: Interesting, interesting, interesting. Jo, I did, um, we mentioned one of the potential constraints on regulatory divergence, which is what we signed up to in the trade and cooperation agreement. But in our recent report, we set out some others. And I think when you wrote about the TIGA report, you noticed that it was focusing only on the uh, one side of the equation, the reasons to diverge and not at all on any of the potential consequences of divergence. What else should ministers have in mind when they think about where and how to diverge?
4: Thanks, Jill. Um, yes, I think that's right, really. I think I've sort of said that the Ticker report was very sort of heavy on ambition and opportunities, but quite weak on the sort of consequences or potential costs. And I think the important thing to sort of remember is that outside of the EU, it is possible for the UK government to do things differently and it has a lot more freedom to do so. Um, but it's not sort of completely unconstrained, but there may be consequences or costs for doing that. Um, and to sort of make an informed decision about whether or not the benefits of doing things differently, and there are potentially benefits to be won, outweigh those costs. You need to acknowledge those costs and take them into account and think about them. And I think you know, we've talked a bit, been talking a bit about the TCA there as one of those potential consequences. Um, and I thought it was notable that in Tigger we didn't see much about sort of working time rules or workers' rights rules or some of those areas which would really raise immediate alarm bells about the TCA level playing field provisions, for instance. But uh, you know, in other areas of Tigger uh, you know. So, yeah, we saw talk about reforming the GDPR data protection rules. Now, we know that the EU uh, sort of makes some elements of sort of cross-border trade easier if it deems your regulatory regimes to be equivalent or um, adopting the same standards. And we saw that earlier this week with data with the EU saying the UK's data regime is adequate and therefore data can continue to transfer easily from the EU to the UK. Now, if we start... making fundamental changes to GDPR, there's a risk that the EU could reverse that decision and that could be a potential consequence. Likewise, you know, we talked earlier, Jill, about the possibility of adding duplicate regimes and that could add costs to businesses that trade in both uh, Great Britain and the EU. And we also know that there's lots of sort of domestic considerations as well. But uh, you know, under the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland has to keep following many EU rules on goods, and if you start to diverge from those EU rules in Great Britain, you risk deepening the Irish Sea border that we already know has been very controversial. And similarly, you know, not all powers that are returning from the EU are coming back to Whitehall and London. Many are also going to the devolved administrations. And they may choose to exercise those powers in a slightly different way. And we already know that the Scottish government, for instance, is keen to remain aligned with many rules, particularly on things like genetic engineering Um, and where we know the Whitehall government is keener uh, when regulating for England to revisit those rules. And so there's a potential sort of controversy and tension there as well. So I think it's really important for both TIGA Report but also for the government to be taking into account these considerations and it's really important that these sort of potential costs or consequences of doing things differently don't necessarily, uh, you know, are cross-government Consequences. So one department spearheaded by a minister who really wants to do lots of things differently could be making proposals to change regulation that affect how we do trade deals with other countries, which involves the Department for International Trade or our relationship with the EU or the Northern Ireland Protocol, which involves cabinet office or the operation of the UK internal market, which involves the business department. And so I think it's making sure that across government you have an ability to sort of see, yes, what are the potential benefits? What could we do differently? But how do we balance those against the potential costs? And I think the only other thing I'd sort of add about Tigger, I think picking up some of the things that people have said already, is I thought it was really, I think it's a really important and useful contribution to the debate uh, about regulatory reform, what we do with these newfound freedoms. But I think it also exposes some of the tensions in this debate, one of which is about do we want to go for deregulation or is it about regulating differently? So there are some bits in TIGA which are very much about red tape challenge type ideas. One in, two out on new regulation. Uh, There's some stuff there about, uh, you know, uh, reducing burdens on businesses. But then on the other side, you've got uh, lots of talk about not a bonfire of red tape regulating well. And we've seen since the start of the year, actually a lot of the talk has been about strengthening EU regulation in some areas. And then another tension that's exposed in Tigger, I think, is between the Brexit debate and some, some proposals which are very much about we are no longer constrained by EU rules, what can we do differently? And there's some sort of uh, you know points here which are very much part of the long-standing Brexit debate about you know changing the Weights and Measures Act to allow goods to be sold in imperial measurements only. But then a lot of the report is actually not really about diverging from EU rules. It's about regulatory reform the UK could have done outside the EU. And I think that's an important part to recognise in this debate is that, uh, you know, it's not just about diverging from EU rules. It's also about Brexit as a watershed moment where you get this sort of political opportunity to revisit regulatory regimes. And after sort of years of stasis during the Brexit process, there is now this opportunity to sort of look again at some of these things, even if in theory we could have been doing them before.
1: Yeah, I think David Frost last week suggested the UK had slightly been a rabbit in front of the headlights uh, on a whole range of areas um, beyond EU competence for the last uh, last 50 years, simply through the disempowering effect of EU membership. I'm sure lots of people would disagree with that. Ian, I just wanted to uh, throw one of Joe's points at you. Um, uh, Just sort of how to... How do unionists in the conserved in the government? Obviously, the government has a sort of fight on its hands. The union it's got the Northern Ireland Protocol. Joe just mentioned that if England or the UK government for England decides to do things differently, it potentially deepens that border in the Irish Sea or uh, leads to conflict with the devolved. Is that something they should? be bothering with that we've got a question here from kevin kevin webb about whether anything other than total alignment with the eu on the regulations ni is northern ireland's obliged to follow basically just doesn't say that northern ireland's not part of the union anymore
3: so look i'm a unionist so i care about the union above uh, almost everything else in terms of politics and they should of course worry about it and um Uh, it's a concern. However, I have have to say since the devolved elections, talking about Scotland now particularly, I think actually it hasn't gone away, that question, but you can see that there isn't going to be an independence referendum anytime soon. On Northern Ireland, it's interesting, and Henry MacDonald, writing for the Times, ex-Guardian observer Guy, had a very interesting analysis on this recently, that the, the picture we get in London of We're heading automatically through this process to a united Ireland is not really where opinion is going in terms of uh, in terms of Northern Ireland. And it's interesting as, as you get the sort of disintegration of the DUP and a move to a more secular politics, there's the potential actually longer term for secular Northern Ireland, releasing the advantages of the arrangements and also not wanting to leave the uk and leaving as as a northern ireland friend of mine puts it puts it try selling the idea of leaving the nhs i know it has a different name in northern ireland but that actually unionism if it can be reinvented over the course of the next 10 years or so stands a pretty good chance of being the secular pragmatic choice and on scotland i think brexit makes it much more difficult i think the the, the whole strategy that alex Salmond has i was there in scotland while he developed it rather brilliantly uh, and jim Sillers first came up with it which was independence in europe it solved so many of the problems for the snp that leaving the uk would be okay because both parties both the rest of the uk and the eu would be members of the same organization scotland would just be sort of tra- transferring and it wouldn't have obviously the currency problem and all, all the rest of it now essentially with brexit i think this becomes more and more apparent will become more and more apparent to scottish nationalists A whole other layer of complexity is introduced in terms of a proper hard border north of Carlisle, the currency question to which the SNP don't have any, uh, don't have any answer. So I I would take with a pinch of salt the Nicola Sturgeon assertion that this is all heading in in one direction. I I think if take sort of 10 year view of it, I'm now actually really quite optimistic about how the union will evolve. But of course, to the heart of your question, Jill, and Michael Gove is a key person on this in the in the government of course those concerns have to be taken seriously and the government has to be careful to to act with respect towards the devolved institutions and I think I I would like to see a much greater effort I'm not sure that this would be reciprocated from Nicola Sturgeon but would certainly be reciprocated by the devolved administration in in Wales uh, at, at creating institutions and talking shops and forums where can actually have a degree of cooperation sort of not everything then turns into a a, a, an edinburgh cardiff punch up with london over london not listening to uh, the concerns of the devolved administrations
1: interesting 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 i'm not sure john whether the cbi is concerned about sort of internal regulatory fracturing between the different parts of the uk obviously we have the internal market act which uh, embeds the principle of uh, non-discrimination and mutual recognition as a counter to that. But I also wondered to what extent business might think the UK might be able to do things a bit better than the EU, but actually it's just not worth it because we actually prefer. We saw that in some of the lobbying going into the government before it formulated its position, particularly under the May government, of business saying, actually, You know, the EU regime could be much better, but one regime is so much better than two. So what pressure will the government be under from at least some of your members who do a lot of trade with the EU to stay in line with what the EU is doing?
2: So, I mean, first and foremost, the EU is our biggest trading partner. It's over 700 billion pounds worth of trade back in 2019. So it's not a market that um, businesses are keen to neglect. any sort of change brings with it disruption and adjustment and cost so it's fairly inevitable that businesses are going to be looking at this and thinking how can we minimise that disruption I think no doubt Jill we might come to this idea of divergence we've spoken about it already I actually think what business is really worried about right now is not active divergence but passive divergence. This idea that the EU is a regulatory body that moves at great speed. So actually when we speak to our members what they are looking at right now is not necessarily government taking a decision to move in a completely different direction. They're looking at what's happening or what might happen with the EU and then the consequences that it could have on their domestic supply chains. So for industries like chemicals, like advanced manufacturing, all these. where they're deeply intertwined supply chains. It's that disruption through passive divergence that is really kind of front and centre for them. Now, does that mean that they aren't thinking about what opportunities could come from regulatory freedom? They absolutely are. And actually, I sort of made the point around divergence uh, and we might sort of come to this. When I speak to firms, They're not looking to go into this whole argument of divergence versus alignment. They're looking at what are the bigger opportunities. Actually, how can we look at a bigger picture for smarter, better regulation? Mm. So I do think that actually the business consensus view has shifted as the politics does. Mm. Business is pragmatic and sensible and reacts to where the political lie of the land is. So whilst you would have heard businesses two, three years ago, really talking to the government about the absolute need for dynamic alignment in industry x now yes of course the view necessarily hasn't changed that that's really important to mitigating disruption but right now they're looking at what are the opportunities you take the automotive sector, huge importance around regulation in terms of that really interconnected supply chains. And that still remains the case. But now they're looking at, OK, what's the edge that we can get on electric vehicles? How can we be a kind of real world leader, compete with Germany that at the moment is ahead of us? So, yes, there's still a focus on how can we mitigate disruption. But increasingly, we're picking up sort of optimism, constructive, proactive. How can we look to really get on the front foot, make the most of this opportunity? So, John,
1: I've got a question here from Hebelink, which is uh, which is relevant to this. Uh, if the UK has its own regulatory regime in some of these forward-looking sectors, sort of ones that we've been talking about, you know, mentioning sort of fintech, life sciences, yeah. genomics, all those things. Hebelink's asked, how does having your own unique regulation guarantee you can actually sell the technology? I mean, do we have to sort of go with a package that we get ahead on regulation, develop the technology... And then if you like, export the regulation or that regulatory framework as well as the technology that is enabled by it, or how does that what a great how question. Do you see that dynamic working? I'm going to come as well to Bernardine about you know how you know the scope for influencing EU regulation, which I think is really interesting. And perhaps the big prize is that uh, when I was in the States, we used to always talk about the California effect of California raising standards and then back reversing them through the rest of the US. And is there any possibility of London effect swamping the Brussels effect,
2: I suppose? Yeah, what a great question. Why don't I sort of take the first point? So I think there are almost kind of three aspects to this. So one is clearly... regulatory environment and I think it was Bernadine said earlier um, actually the UK is hugely well respected as a pragmatic proportionate regulatory environment so it's seen as sensible in this piece so you already have quite a good global brand if we can enhance that with further levels of agility innovation the ability to move quickly that really adds to that I think secondly you've then got the kind of technological development so if we're looking at areas like fintech genomics Uh, electric vehicles, all that kind of piece, AI. Obviously, the tech is a really important part. And then probably the third part of this package is the skill set. So if you look at something like um, the race to net zero, so the UK has an opportunity to be not only a technological leader in the race to net zero, we have All, if you like, the kind of human capital that is necessary, but we could also then be a knowledge leader. We can develop the skill sets that you then form that kind of holistic package. So, in answer to the question, I think it's a combination of the right regulatory environment, having the right technological um, uh, capabilities already in the UK, alongside the right skill set, which we're able to get from our brilliant world leading universities, as an example. That then allows us to get a bit more on the front foot outside of the European Union.
1: And are there other areas where, frankly, we should just say, you were mentioning passive divergence, we should just say, actually, we don't like it. We've not got a seat at the table anymore. We can do some background influencing through UK mission to Brussels, through uh, business organisations and partners elsewhere and like-minded countries. But actually, we should, if you like, actively avoid passive divergence. That sounds a bit weird, but we should just... Try and stay in line because actually it just makes no sense to have a separate UK regulatory regime. We should just
3: have independent
1: policy thinking on that uh, and sort of have a much more differentiated approach.
2: So I, I think uh, I mentioned divergence versus alignment. I personally think we need to scrap this talk. So I think it's the last proxy battle of Brexit. Right, I hate it. I don't actually like talking to it about our uh, with our members. I think it's actually quite unhelpful, but it's important, I guess, in terms of uh, uh, sort of legalistic. And Joe and Bernardine will no doubt tell me I'm talking absolute guff. But actually, I think how we need to think about this is where do we need to cooperate? So every trade agreement is based around cooperation, right? Where do we need to cooperate with the European Union to meet some shared challenges? And I can think of a couple. The environment would be one of them. Digital, uh, some of the digital cyber risks would be another. And then where do we need to continue to cooperate with the European Union to protect the competitiveness of our UK economy? And that could be examples like data, the adequacy agreement that I think Joe uh, mentioned earlier. Brilliant example of that. That's critical to our competitiveness of our economy. Let's do that. There will be other sectors, where it is really important for us to continue to cooperate, advanced manufacturing, chemicals, those kind of pieces, really important for our competitiveness. So I think um, passive divergence uh, or passive uncooperation, if I was going to sort of take my beam, is a, really important, is a really important area for us to keep an eye on. And we need to be quite strategic about where we just go, okay, that's acceptable and we can get a bit more freedom and make the most of it, versus where is that cooperation really important, and we need to take a decision about whether we continue that cooperation or go in a slightly different direction.
1: Bernardine, how sort of easy is it for us to influence regulation in Brussels, where we might need to? And if ministers did decide they just wanted to go along with what the EU is doing. We know we used to be able to just transpose that all through secondary legislation. Uh, Can they just sort of agree in a nice cooperative fashion in the Partnership Council or one of the specialised committees that, yeah, we'll add that to the trade and cooperation agreement. We'll go along with that. Everybody's happy. And does that then become UK law or how does that all work? Um, or do we have to introduce primary legislation every time we uh, want to, you know, a new stay aligned with your act or whatever?
0: Yeah. So in, in terms of what, you know, could we have a conduit here for uh, the sort of revising your coming through the TCA through into domestic law? So under the Partnership Council, it is possible if if basically both the UK and the EU agree, their decisions will amend the CCA treaty. And because it's been such a tearing hurry, the Future Relationship Act, uh, it's not clear what actually this provision is saying, but Section 29 appears to be the conduit for... Everything in the TCA is basically going comes through it's, the, it's the, the pipeline, basically, to bring the TCA into to generally implement the TCA into domestic law. So amendments to the TCA will automatically, through that conduit, flow through into domestic legislation. So is that, that Parliament having a set here, But uh, yeah, but but ha- having said that, I'm not absolutely going to put, you know, bet, bet the house on that because it's torturously drafted. And one plea I would put out to everybody, please, in leaving the EU, can we not lose the baby with the bathwater? You know, English statutory drafting is awful. You know, that we, we are in danger of recreating under this rubric of the common law, a high priesthood of a limited cohort cabal of people can read this stuff regulation needs to be clear and legible and obvious to the lay person to the business person so you know section 29 is a great example of what does it mean but it is appeared to be trying to ensure that that is the route whereby we implement the TCA an international agreement into domestic law and so if the partnership council amended the TCA as they can do without any parliament scrutinizing it etc etc then there's that automatic conduit through to section 29 and I'm very happy if somebody tells me wrong That appears to be its general purpose. And because it went through in such a tearing hurry, probably nobody thought about it at the time. Um, There you go. One of the supplementary point, Jill, people are very much looking at this, you know, crafting, you know, regulation in terms of this, you know, this fest of, of, you know, activity between 27, 28 nations and what this compromise, this mishmash of multilateralism as Lord Frost calls it. And out of that hopper pops regulation. It doesn't work like that in in the eu and i think people really need to start to educate themselves as to how these things are promulgated and move beyond the regular the the, the rhetoric and ask what really happens what really happens on the ground is first of all there's enormous transparency visa in the, in, with the commission in terms of the people who are initially crafting those rules and it's, it's constantly been a source of frustration to me to see often British industry and certainly UK politicians standing up in Parliament. These awful rules came down and there they were on my desk and it was awful. And I've been sitting there shouting back at the television saying, where were you? Why weren't you adopting as your best friend that that official who was crafting those rules? Why weren't you talking to him? So we, we need to appreciate these rules are not crafted often, especially in the regulatory area, by the nations. They're crafted by in a dialogue with the people writing the regulations and business. And I do think that is an area where we have so many much to offer, but this is an area where Whitehall needs to become more transparent. It needs to be easy, easier, much easier for business to understand who's working on that, how can I get hold of them, how can I email them, can I go and sit in their office and talk through the issues? So that that is an area where I think that we really, really need to vastly improve what we do because otherwise we are going to be losing something and we're going to be in danger of having to necessarily follow what the EU doing because business is going to be clamoring for it to happen because they're saying that the EU actually does listen to us in a way that we're not seeing in the UK. So if we want to diverge, we have to be open and have a dialogue with business.
1: Ian, I'm very interested as a sort of observer of the scene on whether you think that this government's gotten appetite for that sort of transparency and maybe if you've got any views some people suggested that the tigger report um basically just looked like a bit of a collation of a wish list from business to which government hadn't or which the tigger authors hadn't placed that much sort of critical faculty um, and we do know that sort of know, yeah, there's sometimes a bit of a naivety in government to just take at face value business lobbying and we've seen some of the risks um You've written uh, extensively about some of the failures resulting from light touch regulation of financial services back in the uh, 2000s in shape of the collapse of RBS. I just wondered, you know, are we actually intellectually up for this task of running our own regulation? If not, how do we go about it so we can actually strike the right balances?
3: I think, Jill, it's a a good question. I think i would regard the events of the last 3 4 months as progress but coming from a position as i said earlier where you know british pol- british politics was essentially a kind of smoking ruin after the referendum and the, the trauma of those 3 4 years so i think it's i think it is to their credit that they realized they didn't have much uh in the locker and didn't have much thinking on this so i th- i think that the the Tigger report is, as I understand it, it's not it's not meant to be the final word. It was an attempt to try and try and move things on. Interesting, you mentioned um, RBS there, a financial regulation. That, for me, is one of the most interesting areas here. That's getting the least um, least attention and least least coverage because we have a big strategic choice to make in terms of how we view regulation of banking and essentially what I term the future of money and money is about to undergo I, I think it was one of the cases for Brexit actually the, the sort of the EU policy infrastructure and regulation and way of consi- way of thinking about these concepts was just sort of too slow moving to adapt to uh, technological change and just the, the enormity of what is, what's coming over the next 10-15 years. And actually, the Bank of England realised this very early on in the process. Carney had been a had been a Remainer, uh, but people like John Cunliffe uh, in the bank were persuaded very quickly that having voted for Brexit, it made absolutely no strategic sense for the city of London to be regulated by email or by fax, as someone put it to me in the Bank of England, which is rather quaint uh from um, from Brussels or or Frankfurt so that that shift in terms of mentality that we will as a global player uh, do our own uh, do our own thing in a global financial center that that shift happened in 2016 2017 the question now is really is whether we whether we and I don't want to use the you know align a or diverge term either But whether we get closer to the U.S. on this, which is really the story of what happened in the 1980s, we adopted a kind of U.S. style, um, highly legalistic approach to regulation. It was re-regulation or deregulation. Do we attempt to form a block effectively with New York and with what's happening in the U.S., which is the technological leader other than China on, on all of this stuff, the future of money stuff, or do we try to stay good friends with the eu and obviously still with the ecb keep the lines of cooperation open but go in our own direction and i think that is I, I i'm i know there is thinking going on inside government on that but i think we're close to the point where you actually need a big speech from the chancellor setting out what the vision is for the city and the future of uh, future of uh, finance because there's a, an enormous opportunity but huge risks come attached to it, uh, come attached to it as well. But I think it deserves a lot more attention.
1: In a normal year, of course, we'd have got it this week at the Mansion House, wouldn't we? Yep. You'd have expected to see exactly that with the Chancellor. I think the governor's published a speech this morning which I haven't looked at yeah. looked at yet. But I'm I'm sort of quite intrigued. Does that suggest that actually, I mean, the government still nominally is in the hunt for an equivalent for a set of equivalence decisions, isn't it? From yeah. the EU on financial services we've had a couple but the rest are still in the you know rather weighty pending trade despite supposed to be being resolved yep. last year i mean is that really for the birds i mean is this actually an age where uh, an issue where neither side quite dares say actually the EU doesn't say actually you're not getting equivalents the uk says well actually we don't want it either really because we want to do our own thing it that's, been, that's been
3: yeah Look, as some, someone who's pro city with with caveats i i i that's long been my assumption, and I, th- I think it's, it in, in, you know inherently a waste of time. That's not to say though that something won't be patched together simply because of the fragility of the global economic situation at the moment. You know, post pandemic. I mean, w- we live in strange times when. Liz trust the sort of arch free marketeer can do what she's just done on steel uh, in terms of um you know tra and continued quotas and tariffs and all that sort of stuff so it, it it's not impossible that some sort of some sort of fudge emerges on on equivalence but longer term if we are leaving the eu and we have left the eu the the, the story of the city of london as a global um capital uh, financial capital stretching back hundreds of years uh, it It has to sort of set its own course and be global in its outlook and not just try and be regulated uh, you know be, just sort of copy the EU book and look for favors from the EU because there's so much innovation happening and about to happen in the in that field the future of money that and the Bank of England is a globally significant institution we should we should set about pursuing our own vision uh, and trying to reinvigorate. Uh, finance and the city in a way which happened in the 60s with the creation of the euro bond and in the 80s with the uh, with with big bang which the government didn't quite realize what it was unleashing and then of course ironically when London became the capital of the euro um, in terms of you know swaps and derivatives and all the rest of it so it's, it, it is it, it's complex but I think the big picture has been grasped by treasury and by Bank of England which is ultimately longer term we have to go in our own direction uh, on, on this and that it looks as though the EU will be a bit slow to adapt.
1: Very interesting. I just want to ask you one question on the TRA decision, which we just heard yesterday. I mean, it's a bit much for a poor little arm's length body to be overruled on its first ever decision. by uh, yeah. Minister's introducing emergency legislation. Does this suggest to you that the government's basically just a soft touch for any slightly john will forgive me for the phrase sort of any you know slightly demanding business lobbyist just has to come and squawk at them and then they just keel it over
3: so- there is that danger i mean i was reminded you i wrote for the times this morning about state aid and there's nothing new under the sun nissan's in the news this morning but i went back to nigel lawson's memoir and looked at how in 84 he and tebbit tweaked the rules on 100 percent capital allowances which they wanted to abolish but nissan desperately wanted and fiddled the legislation uh, rather cleverly so that no one noticed and Nissan got what it wanted and Nissan was built in Sun Sunderland so the Thatcherites did it as well uh, in in, in an intelligent in an intelligent way Uh, I I think though on this on the TRA thing it is embarrassing for them it's their first decision however the government has pointed out that in the interim I think the EU had made its decision on extending the, um, you know, the three-year tariff and quota uh, program. So they could argue that the TRA decision was made on incomplete information. But but the irony is, of course, Liz Truss, free marketeer, is there announcing um, something which uh, I'm sure she, she didn't, uh, she couldn't have imagined when she was writing, uh, you know, pamphlets about fresh starts and Britannia unchained and all that sort of stuff.
1: Britannia rechained or chained differently, perhaps. Joe, I've got a question from Alistair Smith, which is just about, um, and then I want to come on to a wider question about whether we're actually up up to it internally. Do we have the regulatory capacity to actually take the opportunities that may be being identified here? He's asked about, you know, we've got the Brexit Opportunities Unit working, I think, to David Frost, the Office for the Internal Market, in the Competition Markets Authority and the Regulatory Policy Committee, which I think hangs on sitting there in base. Do we actually have a sort of coherent view about who is in charge of this policy? And actually, you know, I think Rishi Richie Sunak charges the committee. I mean, should the Treasury take control or what actually is the right way of making sure we maximise some of the benefits of this in terms of internal white wall and general architecture?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, really, answer is we don't quite know and it's not quite clear, at least from the outside, um, and I think, you yeah, know, have to give full credit to Jill for this, that we sort of have described the sort of government's current approach to sort of taking the opportunities of brexit as a little bit like playing a game of space in faders played blindfolded this idea that you know, lots of action across government lots of consultations lots of uh, speeches lots of ideas um you know in life sciences where's stuff happening in financial services data protection all these areas and we've obviously got the Tigger report independently on top of that as well um, but I think the risk at the moment is that, you know, a lot of these ideas or thinking is, seems to be quite siloed in, in government. And because there are these cross-government trade-offs that you need to consider, it is important there is a sort of degree of coordination, a sense of strategy, a sense of sort of control in some way. So you kind of work out where there are issues that need to be escalated. And I think it is fair to say that there are a few different um There are mechanisms in place in government or being put in place. So we've got this Brexit Opportunities Unit in Cabinet Office under Lord Frost, which might begin to put some strategy and sort of cross-government coordination around there. We have got this better regulation subcommittee of Cabinet, which which we soon act chairs, which can sort of act perhaps as a little bit of a dragon's den, star chamber, sort of interrogating whether or not these regulatory changes have some of these consequences that might need to be considered, whether the costs and benefits outweigh. And we do have existing processes. So like the the better regulation framework, uh, we expect there to be a a consultation on reviewing that. And that framework basically is a current process in government for sort of cost benefit analysis of regulatory change. And that existing process already requires uh, policymakers to think about. Whether or not their regulatory change might have impacts so of the UK's trading relationships, for instance, which is one of the consequences of diverging from the EU or changing our regulatory regimes. But it's only one of them and it's not sort yeah. of the full picture. And I think what we sort of think there needs to be and hopefully will build over time is slightly more sort of a, a clearer direction. And, to departments about what the government strategy is and what factors need to be taken into account and when you need to escalate and think about things, but also then slightly more clear idea of how these different components of what the governments do really fit together. And I think I'd add to that, that we, you know, the government really needs to do is, and the Brexit Opportunities Unit really needs to do, is not just focus on the UK side of the equation, but also not neglect that EU side. So keeping tabs of what the EU is up to, making sure UCMIS, the UK mission in Brussels, is feeding in, speaking to business, um, not just and not just see that what the EU is doing is something that only affects Northern Ireland, that we only think about it when it, the Northern Ireland Protocol is engaged, but something we think about more broadly because it has broader implications as well.
1: Bernadine, what does the UK need to do? I'm going to come to you last sort of last question. What does the UK need to do to be a to be the better regulator and show it can do things better in terms of sort of process capacity? Where would you prioritise?
0: OK, yeah, this is this is like almost, just, you know, ready, study, go cook. First of all, take from the best of both systems um, for a start. So to take, everyone's wrong is saying oh, the EU is a civil system. It's not. When I was at the College of Europe, the um, my fellow, my EU colleagues, you know, other nationalities would say this is amazing. We love studying EU law. It's just like the Anglo-Saxon common law system. Because it's based on precedent like your common law. So they think it's Anglo-Saxon. We think it's civil. It's a mishmash of both. It's a mongrel system. And actually, we should embrace the best of the EU and, you know, take, and meld that with the best of the UK. So one thing is is, is that our judgments are very, very well regarded internationally. And also our judges have huge, you know, flexibility in terms of what the remedies they can issue. So, for example, the Unwired Planet decision by Mr Justice Burse is, is globally important and that we should use and that we should make the best of. So in terms of regulation, Um, We should very much build on the model that we have under the competition rule systems, have independent tribunals. We should maintain and robustly defend having more European-style hearings, more in writing, shorter, snapper, snappier, and more quicker to get to a resolution for business. And Also, the other thing I would really emphasize is that regulators should not be scared of judicial review and getting it wrong. The cat does full merits de novo you know, oversight of the Competition and Markets Authority, and I dare say at times it's been brutal for the CMA, but we get better quality decisions as a result. So I would actually be pushing for a full merits review. Don't fear it. And as I said, the, these tribunals are of great quality and internationally regarded, because contrast the domestic rules, domestic laws in, our, in, in the EU, there isn't the same level of transparency. So there, okay. we have a huge possibility to 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 to, um, to influence and to to change things in the EU to, to help us. And the other thing to point out, Jill, all of this kind of reminds me of the 1960s, Indonesia resigned from the UN and then quietly tiptoed back a year later and no one dared say, didn't you resign? Something that hasn't really been picked up on is BIS, sorry, the, the, the BSI, has now, SEN and Senilec, who are the standard-setting body for the EU, they have basically been going to be granted full membership. So they will very much have a place at that table for crafting those standards. So it may well, I completely agree with Martin, it may well be the case that we will, will go our own ways in terms of financial services because we're not interested in data equivalents. But in terms of manufacturing and the nitty-gritty grinding at times tedious real technical detail is that the, the British industry will hopefully have a seat at that table and I don't think the British fully understand the, the nature of soft power that we exercise in terms of how we think and how we're regarded and I, I applaud the fact that we have actually tiptoed back into, into Sen Senilec and just don't tell Daily Express or Daily Mail readers. Well, you've just told the Times and all Ian's readers. Yeah, well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting point. It's interesting and I think very good for business that it's happened and investment. Well, John's nodding there. So I want to just go to John. John, do you think our regulators are up to it?
2: Uh, uh, listen, really quickly, Joe, I think we don't know yet, do we? That's the sort of point. Do we? It hasn't really been tested yet. We hope that they will be. I think there's a big opportunity for our regulators to try and use this as an opportunity to drive investment and innovation. So, one of the things that we've put in our Seize the Moment report, how can you embed investment and innovation as part of the core remits of regulators? That's actually something that we can do now. could probably have done it whilst in the European Union. Let's not waste our time. Let's get cracking on that. That would be our sort of takeaway now.
1: And Ian, I've just appointed you, because nobody else has applied, I know you didn't want it, to run the Brexit Opportunities Unit. Oh, right. What's uh,
2: Congratulations, Ian.
1: Yeah, Lord Martin or whatever. What's your so what, what
3: what what are the hours like?
1: Uh they're extraordinarily long because yeah, we don't believe in any labour regulation, no holidays and things like that. What's sounds what's, great. What, what's your first act? what would you say that will actually sort of just get the pulses of every Brexit supporter in the country, every Red Wall voter, every Blue Wall voter, whatever, what gets them pulses racing in terms of uh, That is
3: That is a really difficult question because I don't, I mean, I think it's going to take a long time to heal what's just happened in in British politics. So I don't don't think there's a, I know Boris would love to make a speech or press a button and suddenly everyone starts to see Brexit as this great, opportunity when actually it's much more complex than that i do think that the the, the, you know the difficulty is going to be and this you know really interested in the in the contributions contributions i've heard because i I think they highlight this reality that we have to find some kind of middle way between being unnecessarily gloomy because it's done we've left and we all live in the country want it to succeed let's sort of crack on and make the the best of the available opportunities, and I do think there are opportunities, a middle way between that and just excessive boosterism for the sake of it and just saying that everything will be brilliant because everything will be brilliant. Life doesn't work like that. So what I hope the next 10 years or so are about are about all of that sort of negative energy from the the Brexit process being channeled back into trying to improve things, whether that's better regulation, better social mobility, improving the you know improving our prospects um, in terms of innovation universities i think we've got great opportunities but let but i'm but just uh, you know, i've just illustrated why i'm not going to get appointed to this <laughs> job by boris johnson and i certainly and i don't want it so actually my first act jill is to resign no i have resigned as your brexit opportunities
1: right i don't think you're going to be offered the
3: ambassador.
1: job of i don't think you're going to be offered the job of speechwriter either after that i didn't
3: apply for that either i don't want it <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> probably yeah. happy
1: Anyway, I think that was a really, really interesting tour. But I think that sort of ended up with actually where John started, which is actually it's about the bigger picture as well, rather than focusing on this sort of narrow bit of the jigsaw. But I hope that tour around the possibilities and some of the issues was very helpful. And I want to thank all our fantastic panelists. So Joe Marshall, John Foster, Ian Martin. And thanks very much again to Gowning WLG for partnering with us on this event. So thanks very much to Bernadine as well and thank you all very much for watching and do tell your friends
0: thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of ifg live please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events